Brilliant. Thanks, guys, for another epic reading. I feel like we need to do Jude or Philemon or something next, uh, just to give us a break. Um, <laughs> let's pray together, shall we, uh, as we come to God's Word. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that yours are the words of eternal life. Father, please help us to hear, to listen, to obey what you have to say to us this evening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a world, don't we, where words matter. Words really matter. If you were with us this morning, we were in Mark's Gospel, and we saw that that is particularly true when it comes to God's Word. God speaks, and it matters that we listen. But more generally than that, whether we'd call ourselves a Christian or not, we know that we live in a world where words really matter. Whether it's on the world stage or or our day-to-day life, what we say counts. What we say makes a difference. Apparently, we speak around 20,000 words every single day. So Google tells me, actually, Google tells me that's how many uh, words women speak. Men is around 7,000, apparently. Uh, We speak a lot of words. And and each one of them has the power, doesn't it, to build up or to destroy. The power to bless someone, to, to bless their day, or, or to curse, to ruin their day. Our words have enormous power for evil and for good. And more than that, our words, they, they actually reveal what is going on inside us. As we're going to see this evening, the things we say show us the things we believe. Words matter because of what they can do, but also because of what they can show. And we get a picture of that in these chapters of Judges. So flick back to chapter 10 uh, with me, where our first one is just to see that our words teach us something about repentance. What our words show us about repentance. After uh, introducing us to a few minor judges at the start of chapter 10, uh, some great potential Bible baby names there. I'm kind of regretting not having a Dodo Palmer. Uh, but but it, well, we've been introduced to these minor judges, but we come in verse 6 to those kind of familiar words now, don't we? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The cycle begins again. The, the Israelites, they're leaderless, and so quickly they fall back into their old habits. They, they rebel against the Lord, and they run after other gods, the gods of the people around them. And once again, Israel's rebellion leads to God's retribution. This cycle continues, end of verse 6, because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. Rebellion, retribution, and now what are we expecting? Rescue. We're expecting by now that God is going to intervene, that he's going to come and save his people, but things aren't quite as straightforward this time. I wonder if you noticed that as we read it. Because remember, that this is a repeated cycle in Judges, but it's also a downward spiral. Things are getting worse and worse for Israel. And so this time, when they cry out to God in verse 10, he doesn't immediately come to their rescue. Time and again, God says he saved them from the hands of their enemies. And time and again, they have responded to his mercy and grace 
with even deeper, even more persistent sin and rebellion. And to this time when they cry out, God says to them in verse 13, you've forsaken me and you've served other gods, so I will no longer save you. In other words, God sees the heart behind Israel's words. He knows that despite their desperate plea for help, they aren't truly sorry for their sin. They're just sorry for its consequences. Uh, they've, they've gotten themselves into a mess again, and, and now they think, well, if they just say the right words, if they, if they just use the right kind of language, well, then God will come running. But, but God sees through it. He sees their unrepentant heart, and so he refuses. Verse 14, he says, go and ask your gods for help. See if they can save you. God sees through their words to their heart, and, and Israel quickly gets the point. They see how weak and worthless their false gods really are. And so in verse 15, they say, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Israel cries out to God again, but this time, this time it's different. This time they seem to recognize their sin. They accept the consequences of their rebellion. They understand that God is not obliged to save them. And yet they still cry to him for mercy. And notice that, well, that this time their words are matched by their actions. Verse 16, then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and they served the Lord. No longer just empty words. Israel's actions reveal a heart change. Their repentance is seen not just in what they say, but what they do. And so right at the start, in, in chapter 10, we've got to see that, that true repentance is, a, is more than just a matter of words. That, that God isn't fooled or, or manipulated by us when we try to sound religious or appear remorseful. But when our hearts are not truly repentant. No, real repentance involves our mouths and our hearts, our words, and our actions. We've seen this in Mark's gospel, haven't we? It means acknowledging King Jesus with our lips and following him with our lives. In the end, that is what Israel does here. They, they do truly repent. They put away their idols. And so in verse 16, God responds. He says he can't bear their misery any longer. And so he will rescue them. And he'll do it through a man called Jephthah. Which is to the second thing we're going to see this evening. We're going to spend much longer here. Vows and vengeance. We meet Jephthah at the start of chapter 11. And like most of God's rescuers so far, he is an unlikely choice. Verse 1 says he's a mighty warrior. The, the son of Gilead, the head of his tribe. But he's also the son of a prostitute. And so just like Abimelech last week, Jephthah's family tree is not something to brag about. And just like Abimelech, that means the rest of his family look down on him. In fact, verse 2 says his brothers drive him out of town. They want nothing to do with him. And so despised and rejected by his own family, Jephthah flees to the wilderness at the end of verse 3, I, I love this, he, he gathers a gang of scoundrels to himself. He is a bad guy. 
here is Jephthah, the, the illegitimate son of a prostitute, driven out by his dysfunctional family, living as an outlaw, outlaw mixing with low life. He's an outcast. He's a, a criminal, a gangster. Not the kind of hero that we might expect. And yet, once again, this is the person God will use. This is his deliverer. And to begin with, Jephthah, he seems like he could be a good one, doesn't he? Uh, in the first half of chapter 11, as we read it, he, he keeps talking about the Lord. Uh, verse 9, he tells the people of Gilead that it's the Lord who will give him victory. In verses 14 to 26, he gives this long explanation to the Ammonites. And the point is basically that the Lord gave them the land they're in. And if they've got a problem with it, they can take it up with him. In fact, in verse 27, he refers to the Lord as the judge. We've had lots of judges, but the Lord is the judge. And his point is that Yahweh, he's not, he's not just Lord and judge of the Israelites. Now, he's the judge of the whole earth. He gets to decide what will happen to the Ammonites. He gets to decide who lives where and who has what. No one else. And so Jephthah, he gets off to a pretty good start. He repeatedly acknowledges the Lord. He is God's man. But then, it's just when we think we might have found a good judge, things start to go wrong. Look at chapter 11, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give me the, Am the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, there are all sorts of things wrong with what Jephthah does here. The first one, hopefully, is pretty obvious to us. It's that he essentially tries to, to bargain with God. He says, look, God, look, look I'm about to go to battle, and, and if, if you have my back, if, if you help me, I'll make it worth your while. If you do what I want, God, then I will give you something in return. Jephthah thinks he can make a deal with the Lord. He wants to guarantee God's backing in the battle. And not only is that completely unnecessary, because God has already shown that he is with him, he's give him, given him the spirit in verse 29. It is unnecessary and it's pagan. It is the pagan belief that you can somehow manipulate or, or control God with your actions. It's treating God like a, a supernatural slot machine. Uh, put in the right thing and out pops the prize. Jephthah thinks he can control God, but, but of course we know that is nonsense, don't we? If Judges has taught us anything, that, then it's that God is the one who's in control. He is the Lord. Jephthah said it himself, he is the judge. He calls the shots. We know it's ridiculous. We, we know it is crazy to think that we could control God, that we could manipulate him. In our heads we know that, but in our hearts and our lives we so often fall into this way of thinking, don't we? 
As one commentator put it, Jephthah's actions show us something that is endemic in the human heart. We all tend to act this way. We say that we believe in God's unconditional love, but when we get into a tight scrape, our lives betray us. We begin to bargain with God because we're not sure we can really trust him. We so desperately want to see his power at work on our behalf to improve our circumstances or grant us what we might call success that we offer him anything if he'll just intervene. You know how it goes. Help me get this job, Lord, and I will make church a priority. Lord, Lord, heal me from this illness and I promise that I'll read my Bible more. I don't know what it is for you, but, but I imagine if you're anything like me, you, you've thought like this at times. Jephthah's pagan way of thinking is seen in his, his crazy attempt to manipulate God. But it gets even worse. Because when we look at the vow itself, we, we, we see just how, how twisted Jephthah's thinking has become. In verse 30, he says that if the Lord gives him victory he will sacrifice whatever comes out of his house when he gets home. And we, mustn't, we, we really mustn't be misled by the word whatever there in verse 31. Jephthah does not think that a goat is going to answer the front door. He knows that it will be a human. He knows what he's doing. He is trying to buy God with a human sacrifice. And so if we're not convinced about his pagan way of thinking by now, well, then we should be. As we've already seen in Judges so far, uh, for the idol-worshipping Canaanites around Jephthah, human sacrifice was just a normal part of their religious ritual. It's what their gods demanded. And so it seems that Jephthah, he, he's been living among this kind of thing for for so long that he's come to see it as normal, acceptable behavior. There's a, a big battle coming up, and big battles require big sacrifices. That's how you secure victory. That's how you get the gods on your side. But again, we know, don't we, and Jephthah should have known that human sacrifice is not acceptable to the Lord. It is abhorrent. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God warned his people about this sort of thing. He said, when you, when you enter the land, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do the nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things, that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. God has told his people not to adopt the pagan practices of those around them. He hates them. And yet here is Jephthah, so influenced, so shaped by his culture, that he thinks nothing of it. And as we've seen so many times in the book of Judges, the, the moment we start to ignore the Lord and listen to idols, 
things go badly wrong. So verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of tambourines, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore her his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Jephthah arrives home from victory and he is greeted by his only daughter. Smiling, dancing, rejoicing in what he has done. And in verse 35, look at his response. First, he, he even sort of blames her. He says, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. He blames her for coming to the door, blames her for what's about to happen, and then he goes through with his terrible vow. Rather than stop, rather than realize that it would be far better to break a vow than to kill his daughter... Jephthah gives her two months to go and come to terms with her fate. And then in verse 39, it says he did to her as he vowed. This is one of the lowest moments in the book of Judges. One of the lowest, most shocking, horrific, horrific moments in the Bible. It is sickening. And in Judges chapter 12, the killing continues. We didn't read it this evening and we're not going to look at it in any detail but even as we go into the next chapter chapter 12 Jephthah goes on killing more of those he's meant to care for this time it's not a foolish vow that leads to the death of his child it's some childish taunting that leads to a massacre of 42,000 Israelites and so another chapter that began so well ends in tragedy. Jephthah looked like he was God's man, but by the end he's killed his daughter and massacred a fellow tribe of Israel. The downward spiral continues. It is another terrible chapter in this tragic book. But what are we meant to take from it? What are we meant to learn from such a sad story? Well, there are lots of things that we could take, but I want us just to think about two. Two implications to take away and think about this evening. And they're all to do with where we began, with our our words. First, from these chapters, we need to see that our words reveal our hearts. In the New Testament, in James chapter 3, we're told that although it's only small, our tongue is like a a spark that sets a forest on fire. In other words, our, our words, they are dangerous. And we can see that here, can't we? Uh, A pagan vow leads to a family tragedy. Childish taunting in chapter 12 leads to a tribal massacre. Words can be dangerous. But even as we think about the potential damage our words can cause, we need to remember that they are an extension of our heart. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Our words are an extension of our hearts. What we say reveals what we believe. And so if, like Jephthah, we believe in our hearts that we can control God, 
that we can manipulate him and use him to do what we want, well, then we will find that our words, our prayers even, our bargains and deals with the Lord. If in our hearts we are filled with, with jealousy and bitterness towards others, then our words will be used to gossip about them, to slander them, to bring them down. We might not attack them physically like Jephthah, but we will certainly attack them verbally, whether to their face or behind their back. And so one of the implications of this passage is for us to consider how we use our words. To think and to pray about what they reveal about our hearts. Maybe we could uh, talk to a Christian friend about that this week. Ask them to be honest about your speech. Because our words reveal our hearts. It was true for Jephthah and it's true for us. But we also need to see that words shape our hearts. You see, Jephthah was a man, wasn't he, who in the end was shaped more by his idolatrous world than by God's word. The things that God had clearly revealed about himself to his people, to people like Jephthah, uh, things about his character, his sovereignty, his goodness, his faithfulness, those things clearly meant very little to Jephthah. Instead, it was the the words, the voices of his pagan culture that shaped how he viewed God. He treated the Lord just like the idols of his day. And so you see, Jephthah was a man who was, whose heart was shaped more by the world than, God, than by God's word. And again, the same can be true for us, can't it? The voices of our culture can so often be louder than God's voice in our lives. And so just as we thought about this morning in Mark, the question for us is, who am I listening to? Whose words matter most? Whose voice is is shaping the way that I think, the way that I feel, the way that I act? As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, am I I being squeezed into the, the mold of the world? the world's way of thinking, or am I being transformed by God's word as he renews my mind? Or in Colossians chapter 3, are we letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly as individuals and as a church, or or just giving it an hour or so on a Sunday, just about do it? You see, one way or another, words shape our hearts. And so the question for us is, whose words are we listening to? Because as we open the Bible, as we open God's word, he promises to speak to us, to work in us, to to change us from the inside out by the power of his spirit. And so for Christians, those those who have put their trust in Jesus, those who have repented and believed in him, we have God's spirit. Not just his spirit for a particular task at a particular time, like with Jephthah. No, for Christians, God's spirit comes to live in us permanently. His spirit who takes the word and and applies it to our hearts, who changes us, and who crucially, continually draws us back to Christ. 
Because the truth is, whether we are Christians or not, we all fail in these things, don't we? We all cause damage with our words. We're all tempted to listen to the world more than we listen to God. We all fail. We all sin. But wonderfully, we can all come back to Jesus. And so when we are convicted, perhaps even by a passage like this, convicted by the sin that our words reveal, what we need to do is repent. In our words and our actions, we need to turn from our sin and come back to our Savior. Come back to the one whose heart is, is completely pure, and so whose words are always right, always trustworthy, always good. Repent and come back to the one who didn't sacrifice someone else to save himself but instead sacrificed himself to save us. When we fail, when we're fickle and foolish like Jephthah, when our words cause more harm than good, we need to come back to Jesus. And we need to know, we need to be sure that when we do, his vow, his promise, is one of forgiveness and love. And he will not break it. We need to come back to him. Let's pray together. The psalm, psalmist writes in Psalm 119, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Father God, you have spoken to us today, this morning and this evening, about the importance of listening to you. We are well aware, Father, that our hearts are shaped by the world around us so often. The voices of our culture, the voices of this world, would draw us away from you. And so, Father, please, right now, this evening, would you forgive us for the times when we fail to listen to you, the times when we speak and cause harm and damage like Jephthah. But, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is your word who has come for people like us. Please help us to turn to him, to trust him, to listen to him. And as we do, Father, would your word change us and shape us to be more like your son. And we pray it in his name. Amen.